Well, good morning. It's good to be with you, and it's good to open God's Word with you this morning as we are back in the book of Genesis today after a few weeks out of the pulpit. I personally have been grateful for our series through Nahum and for Mackenzie's faithful preaching of that book. I've been encouraged in Christ and thinking about God's mercy to us in Him. I pray that you have been as well. If you would, please join me in a word of prayer. We need the Lord's help. We are weak. There are all kinds of things that distract us and burden us. Some of those things have even been obvious in the service today with difficulties. And we are not shocked that things like that happen. And we are always relying upon the faithfulness of God. And so let's ask him to be with us now as we look to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you even for things that might be uncomfortable uh, for us in a service like this or awkward that remind us of how little we do control and how prone we are to error. And we look to you now as the source of our sufficiency and our strength and our hope as we turn to your word. And so we pray that you would be with us. Minister to us now by your spirit. Use me as the preacher of your word to herald Christ and the truth of your scripture to these dear people today. And we pray for all of us that you would pour your spirit out on us, that we might hear your word, that we might see what you would have us see, that we might receive the truth of your word, that we might trust your promises, heed your warnings, and most of all, cast ourselves upon Christ. Father, we are desperate for you to do these things for us that we could never do for ourselves. Help us, we ask. Help us for Christ's sake. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're back in Genesis this morning. We are jumping in midstream somewhat. Chapter 18, 19, and 20 today. I've thought just very briefly by way of introduction, I will do a flyover of some of the major things that have occurred up to now in the book of Genesis, especially for those of you who may not have been with us regularly through this series. So Genesis chapter one begins. It's the first scene of the movie, though, as we've acknowledged, things began before Genesis one and chapter one, before the world even began, God had determined through his son to save a people. And then he created the world through his son. He created everything that is. He made man uniquely in his image. And he made a covenant with human beings through Adam. He promised Adam eternal life and blessedness should he obey. He promised him death should he disobey. And we know that Adam and Eve broke God's covenant that he had made with them, plunging the entire creation and plunging the human race into ruin. But immediately upon the sin of man, we saw the mercy and the grace of God and the promise of a redeemer who would come. And as we've thought about in Genesis, as we think about all the time, Genesis chapter three and verse 15 is a pivotal verse in all of the Bible. And really the rest of the scripture from Genesis three fifteen to the end is the unfolding of the accomplishment of that promise that there would be the seed of the woman who would come to save the hellbound man in the aftermath of the fall. We saw the immediate effects of sin in the murder of Abel at the hands of his brother Cain. We saw how there were two lines, this line of the woman and the line of the serpent that traced through human lineage. We saw that there was increasing wickedness on the earth that led to a measure of God's judgment in the flood, where he wiped out everything and everyone on the planet, save Noah and his family. Noah and his family were brought safely through water 
on the ark. God then made a covenant with Noah in the aftermath of the flood that he would never again judge the earth that way, that he would preserve the creation. And we thought about the fact that the main reason that he made that covenant to preserve and stabilize the creation is so that the Christ could come to save God's people. After the flood, in kind of a restart where Noah is a type of Adam, a new Adam, God tells Noah to fill the earth and multiply, and that occurs. Through Noah's three sons, peoples scatter across the face of the earth, but they initially were not doing that. They were living together in the plains of Mesopotamia, aiming to make a name for themselves and even building a great tower that would reach to the heavens. And God, of course, came down to see what they were doing. He came down to divide their language and scatter them. And we thought about how even the Tower of Babel is a wonderful pointer to what God would do in redemption at Pentecost, where he would come down again, this time not to scatter and divide, but to unify language and to bring all men into the the church, the one church of his Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ. We thought about how after the scattering of all peoples, God called one man in particular out of paganism. Abraham was living with his fathers on the other side of the river in Ur of the Chaldeans, worshiping other gods, and God out of grace called him. God made promises to Abraham. He promised him a people and a land and made a covenant with him to that end. And he also made a promise to Abraham. He preached the gospel to him that there would be an offspring who would come from Abraham through whom the nations would be blessed, none other than Jesus Christ himself. And we have thought about how all those who believe in this promised offspring of Abraham will be saved. And then in the last few weeks, we've been considering Abraham's life. His life, like ours, was up and down. And yet, through it all, God remains faithful. Through it all, God acts with patience, he acts with grace, and he acts with steadfast love because God keeps every promise he makes. And so now we find ourselves again considering the life and the times of Abraham in several chapters that contain relatively well-known accounts of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see Abraham again um, making a decision with his wife that is less than stellar. There is a lot of Grace and a lot of faithfulness with respect to God in these chapters. And there is, as always, the sin of man in the face of that. So now we're going to consider Genesis 18, 19 and 20 this morning. I have four points for our consideration today, and we're going to reflect and apply as we go. That's the the plan anyway. Hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you. If you do, I will be referring to certain portions of the passage throughout. We have read it already together in the service this morning. And I'm sure we'll have some of the words up on the screen behind me should you need to look that way. Point number one, we will begin in considering the first 15 verses of chapter 18. Point number one, God visits his people. God visits his people. In verses one to eight of Genesis 18, the Lord appears to Abraham by the Oaks of Mamre, which is where Abraham is living at this time. It's where he has pitched his tent. In verse two, there are three men who stand before Abraham, as he looks up, as he lifts his eyes to the horizon, he sees three men. Now, I, along with many others through the history of the church, understand that the three men that Abraham sees are God, the son, pre-incarnate Christ, and then two angels. 
God the Son, and to angels along with him. And if you even look to chapter 19 and verse 1, you'll notice that as the Lord stays behind to talk to Abraham, and then they have a conversation and an interchange, and then at the end of chapter 18, the Lord goes his way, immediately chapter 19 and verse 1, we see that the two angels arrive in Sodom. The two angels who had been with the Lord in appearing to Abraham. So we have God the Son and two angels appearing to Abraham in chapter 18. And as a general note for us as we make our way through the scripture, and whenever you see the Lord manifesting his presence physically with his people, or whenever there are visions of God, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 1 or Isaiah chapter 6, it is God the Son who is being spoken of. It is God the Son that we see. Now, there are other times where the Lord manifests himself in other ways, in clouds and fire and the like. But when we see God in a bodily sense, it is God the Son. So this appearance of the Lord is unique. There are two others with him, as we've said. That's a little bit different than it occurs sometimes. And while the Lord has appeared to Abraham before in visions and the like, here he stays for a while. He even eats a meal that Abraham and Sarah and one of their servants prepare. He has come to reiterate his promise to Abraham and especially to Sarah that Sarah is going to have a son. Because Sarah has not heard this directly from the Lord up to this point. Abraham has. He even is going to effectively take a walk and have a conversation with Abraham when he tells him of his plans to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Abraham and the Lord have an interchange where Abraham will plead for the people of Sodom on their behalf. All of this is a reminder, friends, as we look at the content of chapter 18, that God is not distant. He never has been. He is near. He is near in particular to his people. It's a good reminder to us as well that God is not ashamed of his creation. He made it, and God the Son ultimately would enter into it and take on human flesh to live and to die as a man in order to redeem us in the creation. And God the Son will have a body forever. I think a lot of times in the contemporary church, we don't think well about that fact that God is not ashamed of his creation and that things that are physical in nature are good because God has made them so. It is also a wonderful reminder from Genesis 18 that not only is God not ashamed of his creation, he is not ashamed of his people. Amen? God's people have always acknowledged that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, people who speak that way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. The Lord is not ashamed of his people. He is not a reluctant savior. He delights to save. He delights in mercy. He delights in grace. And he is not ashamed of those who are seeking a homeland, a heavenly city. Verses 9 to 15, as we've just thought about how the Lord shows up and manifests his presence to Abraham. We see beginning in verse nine, how this visit has at least as much to do with Sarah as it does Abraham, because the focus is now going to pivot to her. 
You can see there, even in verse 9, the three say to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he says, well, she's in the tent. And then the Lord, knowing right, that Sarah is near and can overhear, says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And we read in the second half of verse 10 that Sarah was listening at the tent door behind Abraham. And then in verse 11, we get this parenthetical information that we kind of know already. But just to reiterate the realities of the situation, earthly speaking, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. She is no longer having a monthly cycle. She is no longer biologically, in that sense, able to have a child. Now, beginning in verse 12 through 15, in light of all of that, in light of the utter impossibility of this promise being realized, we have a very sweet and good scene. Sarah laughs to herself, much like her husband had done in chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 17, after the Lord tells him that Sarah is going to have a son and that he will, God will bless Sarah and she will become nations and kings of people shall come from Sarah. Chapter 17 and verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed to himself and said, shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred? Shall Sarah, who is 90, bear a child? And now Sarah has the same reaction. Upon hearing this promise of the Lord, Sarah laughs to herself like for real after I am in her own language worn out and my husband is old. This is going to happen. Here, as was true with Abraham in chapter 17, it does not seem that Sarah's laughter is out of just utter disrespect. Certainly there is some unbelief, like how in the world can this happen? It's kind of like when you tell a child you know, something that's going to happen, that you're going to go do, that is kind of outside of the categories that they have in their mind, and there's this kind of laughter and this response of like, for real? Like that's going to happen? The promises of God are so often far outside of our human experience to the extent that the reaction prompted in us almost spontaneously is something like this. You see, God has been promising this child for a long time. For decades, they have been waiting on this. He had held off and delivering on the promise. And in the meantime, a lot of mess has occurred, right? Abraham and Sarah had tried to take matters into their own hands with Hagar and that whole situation. That didn't go well. And now the Lord has him in a place where it is flat out impossible that what he says could happen from their perspective. So in other words, God is now able to get to work. It's like, all right, now we can get down to business because you know that you know that you know that this won't happen in any normal way. The interchange is interesting. It's a good scene. The Lord, again, think pre-incarnate Christ, God the Son, says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, he reiterates, I will come this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Verse 15, Sarah denies it saying, I didn't laugh for she was afraid. And I'm not alone in reading it this way. The posture and the response of the Lord is like, no, but you did. You did laugh. There. 
Friends, our God is, I don't know any other way to describe it. He is wonderful. And his ways with us are too. He makes promises to us, his people, throughout the scriptures. That we, when we are not so inoculated to them, because sometimes we hear these promises so much that they just kind of wash over us and there's not a lot of response that's evoked. But when we are not so inoculated to the promises of God, he makes all kinds of promises to us, his people, where we respond and we're like, for real? Are you serious? That's going to happen. How could that happen? All of the promises of God are pointers to Christ. They foreshadow the gospel. Think about the gospel, even. This message is not a message that man could come up with. At a human level, it is mind-blowing for us. God is going to become a human being. What's more, he's going to become a baby, not just appear as an adult. He's going to be born as a helpless small child. He's going to be born in very modest circumstances. There will be nothing remarkable about him. He would live a relatively obscure life for three decades. He would live in that obscurity a perfect life, a perfect obedience, upholding God's law in every way. And then at the right time, he would say, I'll die so that the criminals can go free. And we hear that, we're like, for real? The criminals can go free. You will die so that we can be free. Our God is merciful and he is gracious and he loves to redeem. It's important that when we talk about God's nature and his character, that we are precise. Wrath and judgment are not part of God's nature. You understand that? Wrath and judgment are a response to evil. They are a response to sin because God is just and because he is righteous and because he's good. There is a no doubt there is a sector of the church that emphasizes God's love to the neglect of his righteousness and holiness and justice. And that is no good. We ought not do that. But we need to be careful to not make the opposite error where we depict the Lord as perpetually angry and not just angry in general, angry even towards his own people. Or we depict him as severe towards his children or we depict him as eager to drop the hammer on his children. Consider the grace and the mercy that's all over this account of Sarah and Abraham right here. In his interaction with Sarah, it's not that he is lowering the boom on her. I mean, there is, again, I don't think it's disrespectful. I think it's legitimate unbelief. She can't believe it. It seems outlandish. How could this be true? He doesn't just drop the hammer. His response is like, no, but you, you laughed at that. You did. When we hear the gospel sometimes, think about this. Have there been times in your life where you have heard the gospel and your response is like, can that really be true? Can that really be true? That I'm a wretch and a sinner who deserves judgment and that God became a man and did everything that's required. 
and then paid the penalty that lawbreakers deserve that I should get. He took it. You're telling me that it's done and it's over and I am now righteous? You for real? And it's as though the Lord is like, think of his grace and mercy to you and me. It's as though in those moments he looks at us and he's like, yeah, I know that you don't believe me. But I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to give you faith that you will believe me, that you will take my word on this. That's what he did for Sarah. Hebrews 11, 11. If you're taking notes or something, write that verse down because you've just listened to how she responds here. Then the writer to the Hebrews pins these words. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. And if you're like me, you're like, I don't know that I read that in this verse. I don't know that I saw that in Genesis 18. That Sarah knew that the one who had made the promises was trustworthy and therefore by faith she conceived a child. Oh, how God works in his people, how he imparts faith and gives faith and strengthens faith and sustains faith, even when it's but a flicker. And remember, even in this interaction here in Genesis 18, that it is God, the son who speaks to Sarah. And when he came and took on flesh and did ministry on earth, He had interactions with a number of people. He had interactions with a number of women. But he came and dealt with one woman in particular that kept coming to my mind, even in thinking about this account. There's a woman in Luke chapter seven who is a woman of the city. She's a prostitute and she desires to see Christ. She goes to the house of a Pharisee where Jesus is having dinner. That's a pretty bold move in and of itself for a woman like her to go to a house of a man like that while Christ is having dinner there. And she comes in and many will know the story where she washes Jesus's feet with her tears and dries them with her hair. The Pharisee does not know. And we presume the other guests present do not know what to do with this. And they're thinking if he knew what kind of woman this was, he would not have anything to do with her. Jesus has words for the Pharisees, but then his word to that woman is that you are forgiven. It's remarkable. What's the issue? The issue here is completely this. We were talking about this the other night in our elders meeting. For those who know that they have nothing to offer, for those who know that they have no righteousness of their own, for those who know that they are desperate for what only Jesus can do, for them and cast themselves upon him in faith, his word to such people is forgiven. His word to such people is come to me that I may give you rest for your souls. The question is for you and for me, friends, as we think about ourselves before the Lord is, do you know that you need Christ? Do you know that you need him? That is the most basic question that we could ever answer when it comes to the Christian life. Not what are you doing, not how are you feeling, but who do you trust? For those who come knowing they need him, he says he turns no one away. He says he will raise us up on the last day and that that is the will of his father, that all who believe in him 
will be kept and will be raised by him on the last day. And he promises that he will take away our burdens and that he will give us rest for our souls because he is gentle and lowly in heart and he loves us. We see that even here in Genesis 18. The nature and character of God has never changed. Praise be to his name. Point two. We're now going to look at the second half of chapter 18. And we're going to consider this conversation about mercy and justice that occurred between Abraham and the Lord. A conversation about mercy and justice. So let's make some headway here. Beginning in verse 16, the three visitors set out and Abraham goes with them to see them off. Now, the Lord kind of thinks out loud for two or three verses. And then in verses 20 and 21, the Lord lets Abraham know what his plan is regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. There is great wickedness in those cities. We learned, just briefly mentioned, we learned of that wickedness a little bit in chapter 13. When Lot pitched his tent near Sodom, the wickedness of the men of that city was great, we learned then. And we will see a harrowing example of this wickedness in chapter 19. Then in verse 22, the men, the angels, head towards Sodom. And Abraham stands before the Lord, and the Lord remains to talk with Abraham. And then in verses 23 through 32, there's this back and forth, this interchange between Abraham and the Lord, between Abraham and God the Son. Abraham, in these verses, intercedes for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. This prayer is remarkable in a number of ways. It's very clear that Abraham understands that the Lord is just. Even the question he asks in verse 25 is rhetorical. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Of course he will. When Abraham pleads, though, for Sodom on account of righteous people who might dwell there, I don't think he means people who are inherently righteous. Track with me. Abraham knows his own record. Think of everything that's happened in his own life up to now. It's not been pristine by any measure. He knows that his own standing before the Lord is not based on him. So I think he means when he asks, what if, what if there are righteous people there? I think he means, Lord, what if there are people there like me? What if there are people there like me who are trusting your promises? What about that? And then the dialogue occurs. It's incredible. He starts with like, well, what would you destroy the whole city? If, you know, if there are 50 righteous people there, wouldn't you spare them? The Lord says, I would. But then Abraham continues to backpedal. You know, well, what about what about if there were 45 and then 40 and then 30 and then 20 and then 10? And the Lord agrees each time. No, if I find that number, I won't destroy the city. It's interesting here. Abraham is both bold and humble in the way that he interacts with the Lord. And those aren't contradictory. You realize that pride is the opposite of humility, not boldness. He approaches God knowing that he's not worthy. I mean, look at verse 27, where he even says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Yet he keeps pleading with him. Why would he do that? Why would he keep pleading with the Lord this way? I think it's because he knows who he's talking to. He knows that the Lord is merciful and gracious. Think about it. If anybody knew God to be merciful and gracious, was it not Abraham? My goodness, with his life and the ups and the downs and the sin and the faith. All of this, too, says something wonderful about our God. He is holy and he is righteous. He is just. 
and he always does what is right. And his throne is a throne of grace and mercy. Apparently, his throne is the kind that even dust and ashes can approach. That's remarkable. As we sing here sometimes, thy mercy seat is open still. Here, let my soul retreat. At the end of this interchange, the Lord departs and Abraham departs in verse 33. Thinking back briefly, though, to the way that Abraham pleads with the Lord, think of world history. You know, when Abraham's like, what about if there are 50 righteous and so on and so on and so on, and 45 and 40 and 30 and 20 and 10? Could the Lord find five righteous in the history of the world? Could he find one? If we're talking about righteousness that God requires, he couldn't find anyone from the children of Adam. None of us are righteous. No, not one. But God did find one who was righteous. And the great, I think the gripping irony of it all is that the one who is righteous, who would save the unrighteous, is the one that Abraham is talking to in this very passage. God would find one righteous man, his very own son, who took on flesh. And the question then is, on account of that one righteous man, would the world be spared? On the count of one, for the sake of one righteous man, would God save many? And the answer to that question is yes. The answer to that question is yes, because that righteous man represents all those who believe. He stands in the place of all who trust him. To be righteous Rightly defined is to be an upholder, a doer of God's law. And God's righteous one did that for us. Not only did he do that, he took all of our sins. See, we are like Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't like to think like that, but we are. We are like Sodom and Gomorrah, and he, though righteous, was made to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the takeaway? Trust Christ. Trust the one righteous man who stood in the place of many to save us from our sins and give us righteousness before God. Point three. We're going to move on now to consider Sodom and Gomorrah. I've entitled this point three Sin City. I didn't, I'm not trying to be cute, but Sin City. We're going to think about this because when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, I think people immediately are like, you know, we call Vegas Sin City in America. But Sodom and Gomorrah are legendary in world history, and they're used as a byword, almost synonymous with the city of evil. So here we are. In verses 1 to 3, Lot meets the two angels and presses them to stay with him. We're in chapter 19. Perhaps this was out of hospitality, that Lot is so adamant that they stay with him. Or perhaps it was because Lot knew what would go down if the men stayed in the town square. We're not told. Either way... Things head downhill pretty quickly. Doesn't take long. In verses 4 and 5, the men of Sodom, in a mob-like fashion, demand to have sexual relations with these visitors. And then in verses 6 and 7, Lot goes out. The two angels, the two men are inside. Lot goes out to plead with the men of the city to not do this wicked thing. So far, so good. That good is... Over as of verse 8. It takes a just a shuddering turn. Where he then offers his two virgin daughters to the mob. 
He says, I'll give them to you and do with them whatever you want. Just don't do anything to the men who are staying with me. Now, there were notions of what hospitality meant in terms of protection of your guests and the like. But even still, this is one of those verses that you read and you're like, goodness, this is tough to even look at and consider. I think it's important that we hit the pause button right here and just talk real for a second. Like you, It's easy to be really hard on Lot right now, but you realize there's no easy way out of this situation. There's no fixing this easily. Like, and what I mean by that is Lot is in deep right here. And you realize that this whole thing started with him being in so deep. It started when he pitched his tent a little too close to Sodom in chapter 13. Now, what I don't mean by that is don't live in the world. Because some people might hear me say he pitched his tent too close to Sodom, and it means that we need to create these, you know, like Benedict communities and run away from the world and live in isolation and become monks. That's not what I mean. Jesus didn't pray that we, his people, would be taken out of the world, but rather that we would be protected from the evil one. We live in the world. But here's the point. Impossibly difficult circumstances start when we look at sin And we think, I can live here. Impossibly difficult circumstances start when we look at sin and think, yeah, I can live here. It's actually not so bad. It's kind of nice, really. And then once we're there, there's really only one way out, and that's that God would drag us out. This is how sin works. It is deceitful. You pitch your tent your proverbial tent in Sodom, and you are up to your eyeballs in sin, and there is no easy way out, and it will be painful. And God himself will have to intervene. Back to the text for just a moment. We're going to keep thinking about that again in a recurring sense. Verse 9, the mob doesn't respond very well to Lot. They threaten him. The men, the angels, pull Lot back in the house in verses 10 and 11 and strike the mob with blindness so that this chaos ensues. The quick question here, what is the sin of Sodom? When we talk about this city being full of sin, what is the sin of Sodom? I think most people just kind of cursory answer immediately would say, well, it's with sexual immorality. That's certainly true. But it is much more than that. It's more fundamental than that. It's more upstream than that. The prophets, Isaiah in chapter 1 of his Book Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 16 will bear witness that the sin of Sodom at its most basic level was rebellion against God. There was pride, the prophets say, in the city. There was prosperous ease with no regard for the needy, the prophets say. There was dishonesty in dealings. There was adultery and there were other forms of sexual immorality as this text bears out and the New Testament confirms. All of that is true. But there is a reason, friends, that the first commandment is first. You shall have no other gods before me. There is a reason that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because all the other commandments flow from this one. And it is the breaking of that commandment that leads to the breaking of all of the other ones. That was true of Sodom and is true today. Back to the text, verses 12 and 13. The angels warn Lot of what's going to happen to the city. And then Lot's sons-in-law, when Lot comes to them and says, hey, we got to get out of here. They respond to him. They think he's joking. He looks ridiculous to them. Such has been the experience of God's people through the history of the world. Verse 15. 
The next morning, the angels, though, urge Lot himself, like, hey, man, it is time to go. Like, judgment is coming. You need to get out of here with any of your loved ones. Take your wife and your daughters and go. Verse 16, those first three words, but he lingered. Now, Lot had clearly understood enough of what the angels had said, yet he was hesitant to leave. I think this, too, is incredibly revealing about human nature. We all know what's going on with Lot. It's like the Lord in writing this. He's reading our mail. We can find ourselves sometimes in the midst of things that are wrong. We know they're wrong. And yet we can't bring ourselves to fully face up to the evil of it. And there's a part of us that wants to stay because the flesh, the old man, will always remain in love with sin. Now, if that were all that we could say, there would be no hope. But friends, God is a redeemer. He's a savior. The angels, put your eyes back on verse 16. The angels literally grab the hands of Lot and his family. And they functionally drag them out of the city. Had they not done so, we can reasonably conclude that Lot and his family would have remained there even as fire and sulfur were raining down. But God rescues them. Verse 16 is beautiful. The men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Praise God, brothers and sisters, for his mercy to drag us out of sin and destruction. He has done this millions of times in the lives of his people. Thank God for the regular reminders of his law. We need it to teach us what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what will wreck our lives and what will bring flourishing. And thank God for the consequences of sin. Hear me out on this. We need the consequences of sin in this life to teach us. You realize this. This sometimes is a mind blow for people. Biblically, it holds. You realize the fact that sin brings destruction and pain is because of God, not Satan. Sin brings destruction and pain because of God, not Satan. If Satan had his way, people would be happy and comfortable in their sin. The fact that sin brings suffering is because God has said it is so. So even that is the kindness of God to teach us this is wrong. This is not okay. This will do nothing good in your life. Exhibit A, B, and C. Look at the carnage that it's caused. The Lord is merciful. Verses 23 to 29, the Lord brings the judgment that he has promised on Sodom and Gomorrah. There is a deluge of fire. Lot's wife, as they're fleeing, looks back, which they had been told not to do, and becomes like a pillar of salt. And when you hear that pillar of salt language, think about the the remains of people at a place like Pompeii. This is kind of what happens when fire and these sorts of things occur. When it comes to God's judgment, friends, let's just suffice it to say that there is no middle ground. Lot's wife, in looking back, was trying to occupy some sort of middle ground, and it did not work. Then in verses 30 and 38, we have this account of Lot and his daughters. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail on this. This, too, is one of the more harrowing, just I don't even know the right word to say in terms of some one of those things that you read in the scriptures 
Or I think some people probably at a first reading are like, is this really in here? And then even as you process it, it's just difficult, difficult to read. This is one of many accounts, though, that demonstrate that there was no editing that took place when it comes to the record of God's people. The scriptures are breathtakingly honest about the sin that has existed even in the lives of the saints through time. Lot, we know, is living in a cave with his daughters. And the two daughters, again, remember, judgment has occurred. Like everybody that they know is dead. It's a bad time, suffice it to say. The two daughters hatch perhaps the worst plan up to this point in the biblical record. And there have been some bad plans already. We learn that the Moabites and the Ammonites originate from these incestual relationships, incestuous relationships. And those two people groups, the Moabites and the Ammonites, will show up at various points in the Old Testament. For our purposes today, consider this with me, though. As uncomfortable and just ugly and whatever that account is, how wicked it is. Fast forward many years to the book of Ruth. There is a Moabite woman named Ruth that that book is about. And she, this woman who is in the lineage of this relationship between Lot and one of his daughters, she is going to become the great-grandmother of King David. Ruth, a Moabites, is named in the genealogy of Jesus. Jesus was born the sinless son of God, into a family that was racked with sin. It's only fitting for the one who would take upon himself the world's sin so that he might proclaim his people righteous. I've said it a number of times today, friends, but I'll say it again. Suffice it to say, our God is a redeemer. He takes this, this carnage, this wreckage, this ruin, this ugliness, and from this, A woman from this relationship is going to be in the lineage of the Messiah. Her name is recorded in Holy Scripture. We still speak of it today because this is how the Lord works. Praise be to his name. Just a little bit more on Lot before we move on. And I am aware of time, a lot of content today, and I trust you're tracking with me. To be honest, there's a lot more to say about Lot than I would have even thought, perhaps, when I started to study and prepare. As you read the narrative, there really isn't much good at all about Lot in these chapters. There just isn't. You look for something good about him, you're coming up empty. I mean, save the one moment when he's like, you know, men of the city, don't do this wicked thing. He had chosen to live in Sodom. He had pitched his tent there. He clearly knew the kind of things that went down there. He offers his daughters up at this one harrowing moment. And then he lingers in the city rather than leaving it. The angels have to drag him out. And then, of course, there's... The situation with his daughters. And the shocking thing is that this is the man of whom the Apostle Peter writes these words. And if God rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting, he was tormented his and his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And we, you read, after reading Genesis 18, 19, and then you read 2 Peter, and you think, I, that, that's a disconnect for me. How in the world is this man called righteous? And what in the world is going on here? Clearly, let's just state a few things plainly. 
The righteousness of Lot is not his own. The righteousness of Lot is what we call an alien righteousness. It is an, a righteousness of another person counted to him. This is the same way that the saints have been declared righteous through history. Lot is one of their number. There is something going on with Lot that he could be declared righteous, and it has everything to do with God, not him. And the kicker, this is what's hard for us to hear. We are a lot more like Lot than we like to think. We tend to, as we've said so many times, we tend to see ourselves in all the wrong places in Scripture. We see ourselves in the good characters. We don't see ourselves so much in the bad ones. When we see this wreckage and ruin, we think, nah, I wouldn't do that. That's terrible. How could he do that? We are more like Lot than we think. We have been declared righteous by God on the basis of faith in his promised one. But like Lot, we often find ourselves in the midst of sin. There was a part of him that was clearly okay with sin. There was a part of him that was reluctant to leave the place of it. And according to Peter, all the while, there was a sense in which his soul, his inner man, was miserable. He was being tormented in his soul as he lived in the midst of this sin that he, on the one hand, seems very comfortable with. You ever been there? Have you ever been there where you find yourself in a situation where you are immersed in sin and part of you, your flesh, loves it? Part of you, your inner man, is miserable. What a mystery we are to ourselves. It's like John Newton said, I am a riddle unto myself, a heap of inconsistence. It's like Paul wrote in Romans 7. We reference it all the time because truer words have never been written of our experience. That the good we want to do, we don't often do. And the bad we don't want to do, we often find ourselves doing it. When we want to do good, evil lies close at hand. This has always been the struggle and the battle of the saints. It was true of Lot's life and it's true of ours. The takeaway from that is that we are desperate for the grace of God. We are desperate that God, like he did with Lot, would drag us out of sin. And sometimes he does that through our brothers and sisters in the church. Sometimes he does that through sermons like this. He uses all kinds of means. Were it not for his grace and were it not for Christ, we would be without hope. But this is why we pray the way that we do for one another and for ourselves, that God would protect us from sin and that he would deliver people from sin because it's what he's in the business of doing. Point four, as we conclude our time together, this one is briefer. Point four, we're going to look at chapter 20, verses 1 to 18. We're going to survey these verses. I've entitled this, point four, Egypt 2.0. Egypt 2.0. What I mean by that is, if you remember back to chapter 12, verses 10 and following, when Abram and Sarai at the time were in Egypt, and Abram and Sarah had a plan. He said to her, tell them that you're my sister. And you remember that whole business of when she was taken into Pharaoh's house. And we considered even then how Pharaoh, in a lot of ways, was more righteous than Abraham at that point in time. I call this Egypt 2.0 because it's so similar to what transpired in Egypt. It's striking. It's like deja vu. Regarding Abraham and his life, he is a man of faith. He is held up as the model of justification by faith in all of the scripture. He did righteous things. He acted with great faith at points, and he is a sinner. The more I read and study Abraham and his life, the more that kind of flannel board Sunday school view of him sort of fades away. Abraham is like me, and he's like you. 
Think about this account in particular. He has just acted with mercy. He has pled with the Lord for his fellow man. He has just witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah with fire from heaven. And then he turns right around and says, all right, Sarah, you remember the plan, don't you? Tell them again that you're my sister. Here's the thing. In this whole account, there are no good actors in this story. Abraham lies. He deceives again. He plans for his wife to be given over to defilement for his own sake. Again, Sarah is complicit. She doesn't say anything. And then even Abimelech. I mean, when Abimelech has this dream, the Lord comes to him in the dream, and Abimelech is sort of pleading for his own case. And he says, you know, I did this out of the integrity of my heart. You know that. I I was told that she was this man's sister and and all of the the like. And are you really going to judge me? And God says to him in the dream, verse 6 of chapter 20, yes, I know that you've done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning. Therefore, I didn't let you touch her, lest we get this twisted. In other words, there are no heroes in this story except God. It's true all the time. We've already considered Lot and his sin a good bit. We've considered Abraham's life and his sin in past weeks, and here we are again. It's like the scripture over and over again demonstrates to us that the saints through time have been justified in sinners. We see it constantly. The scriptures, as I said a few weeks ago, are a comfort. They are a treasure to those who seek to be honest about our own struggle against sin. The sad thing, I think, for many of us is that we've never really looked at them this way. We've never been taught them this way. We, we sort of have this flannel board understanding. We grew up, if we grew up in the church at all, being taught about the heroes that existed in the scripture and the wonderful things that they did. And we kind of were taught to follow them around and learn how to be like Abraham or like David or like Moses or like Daniel. It's good for us to realize that there is... One hero of the entire story, it is God himself. There is one righteous man in the entire story. His name is Christ. His name is Jesus. And it's good for us to realize that saints through history have committed grievous sins. They have committed the same grievous sins more than once. That's perhaps one of the most shocking things that happens. We always struggle, and it's right that we do. We struggle when we look at one another's lives, and there are patterns of habitual sin. But one of the things that's often lost in that conversation are testimonies such as this, where you find people, in this case, decades apart, you find a man who is upheld as the model of justification by faith, doing this heinous, grievous thing again. Now, I always like to clarify, because some people are prone to misunderstand me when I speak this way. The point is not that sin doesn't matter. The point is not that sin is no big deal. The point is not like, oh, we'll just go and sin and do whatever you want. Do the same thing over and over again. It doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is that God has always saved one kind of person. He saves sinners from the bad to the worst because there are no other kind. He justifies not the godly, but the ungodly by faith in Christ. I don't know about you, but anybody else thankful that that's how he works? He saves 
wretches in need of mercy. He saves wicked people and gives them righteousness. And then he is faithful to sanctify us. We are not always very good evaluators of the sanctifying work of God in our lives. Sanctification, I think, needs to be stated. is something that the Lord does. We participate in sanctification by the nature of the fact that we are alive now spiritually. But our sanctification is purely because of our union with Christ by faith. We are guaranteed that we will be conformed into his image. Think about how you have been sanctified most in your life. Typically, the greatest points of sanctification occur when you encounter circumstances, seasons of your life that you didn't plan, that you didn't ask for, that you certainly didn't sign up for, that you would change if you could. And yet... The Lord takes those things and he produces steadfastness in you. Now, that is a miracle. That is the work of God Almighty, that he would take something that in and of itself is bad, suffering, and produce steadfastness in us. The Lord sanctifies his people. And so we are not always great observers of what this looks like. We would look at Abraham's life, many of us would, and say, bro, I don't know. I don't know that you're repentant. You've done this too many times. Yet when all is said and done, sin and all, Abraham was finally saved on account of Christ and his righteousness. And so will we be. Lot, when all was said and done, was saved on the basis of Christ and his righteousness. So will we be. Now that is mercy. That's grace and that is love. So when you read pages like this, as you live life in this fallen world, battling your sin, often discouraged, often struggling, Look to the lives of these people and see the utter faithfulness of your God to keep people who are sinful, just like you and like me. Praise be to the Lord that he is faithful to us even when we are faithless. And now, as we will prepare to leave this place in just a few moments, may we love him. May we trust him. May we pursue righteousness. May we flee from sin and may we love each other. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you and we pray simply that you would you would turn the water of this preacher's efforts into wine for your people. We pray as well, Father, that you would now be using the preaching of your word to sustain and strengthen the faith of the saints, to impart faith to some who may be here with us this morning. We pray for ourselves, Lord, that we would flee from sin and pursue righteousness. We pray that as we are sometimes encountering the ugliness in our own lives and hearts and minds, that we would be encouraged by the countless testimonies of your faithfulness to keep sinners. We pray that we would know the sufficiency of Christ as our Savior. We pray that we would behold him and trust him, and that as we do that, we would be changed 
to be more like him. We pray for you to do this work in and through us in Jesus' name. Amen.